Hello, and welcome to another episode of Nostalgic Mystery Radio. I'm your host, Stevie Kay, and it's my honor to bring you the radio shows of yesteryear. For this episode, I bring you P.D. James's Devices and Desires. When Adam Dalgleish visits Lark Soken, a remote headland community on the Norfolk coast in the shadow of a nuclear power station, he expects to be engaged only in the sad business of tying up his aunt's estate. But the peace of Lark Soken is illusory. Someone is terrorizing the neighborhood, and Dalgleish finds himself drawn into the lives of the isolated headlanders in an attempt to uncover what sinister forces are at work. So sit back and relax, and I hope you enjoy this Nostalgic Mystery Radio. Thank you for listening. Where have you been, Miles? We waited for you for nearly an hour. I've been considering how best to answer that question for the last 20 minutes. There are a number of possibilities. I could say that I've been helping the police with their inquiries or that there was a little unpleasantness on the road, or that I'd been involved in a murder. What on earth do you mean? Actually, Alice, it was all three. The whistler has killed again. I found the body. Devices and Desires by P.D. James. Dramatised in six episodes by Neville Teller. With Robin Ellis as Adam Dalgleish. Episode 2 I had to be in Norwich this afternoon, so I was driving from there. I just turned off at Fairstead when I nearly crashed into the back of this unlit car skewed across the road. What time was this? Oh, about 7.30. I'd have been here by quarter to eight. The driver's door was open, and that seemed a bit odd. I thought there might have been an accident, so I went to have a look. There was no one about. I walked a little way into the woods, but it was pitch black, so I decided to leave and mind my own business. It was then I almost tripped over her. God. Here, I have some of this. Thanks. I still couldn't see anything, of course, but I, I, I knelt down and groped about with my hands. And that's when I touched flesh. I think I touched her thigh. I can't be sure. I went back to the car and got my torch. I shone it on her feet and then slowly up her body to her face. And then, of course, I saw. I knew it was the whistler. Oh. Was it very terrible? I suppose so, but that silly at the same time. She looked grotesque, ridiculous, with those clumps of hair sticking out of her mouth as if she was munching. Oh. I had an almost irresistible impulse to giggle. Uh, reaction to shock, Miles. Of course, but hardly admirable all the same. You must have been terrified. I know I should have been. Alone, in the darkness, with such horror. No, Mrs. Dennison. Meg, please. Meg, not terrified. That was the surprising part. You see, I didn't think he was waiting around. He'd had his kicks. No, I, I found myself thinking the rational, commonplace things. Must get the police. Mustn't touch anything. Then, walking back to the car, I started rehearsing what I'd say. I tried to explain why I'd gone into the trees, tried to make it sound reasonable. Well, that sounds reasonable enough to me. A car slewed across the road. You couldn't just drive on. It seemed to need a lot of explaining then and later. Police questioning can seem a little insensitive, Mr Lessingham, but a witness's first reactions can be vital. 
All I can say is that I found myself getting morbidly sensitive as to my own motives. It was almost as if I had to convince myself that I didn't do it. But the body, when you first went back for the torch and saw her, you were certain she was dead. Oh, yes. I knew she was dead. Well, how could you have known? You could have tried to resuscitate her, give her the kiss of life. It would have been worth overcoming your natural repugnance. I knew she was dead. Let's leave it at that. Oh, but don't worry, Hilary. I promise I won't let my natural repugnance stand in the way if ever I should find you in extremis. I'm surprised you weren't treated as a suspect. After all, you were first on the scene, and this is the second time you've been, well, almost in it to death. It's becoming quite a habit. But there's a difference, isn't there? I had to watch Toby die, remember? And this time, no one will even try to pretend it isn't murder. But I am right, Mr. Dalgleish, aren't I? Don't the police usually suspect the person who finds the body? Not necessarily. Anyway, I'm afraid I couldn't meet the requirements even to satisfy you, Hillary. I had a good reason for being on that road. I have an alibi for at least two of the previous killings. And there was no sign of the ligature which strangled her, nor of the knife. What knife? The whistler is a strangler. Oh, I didn't mention that, did I? She was strangled, all right. But he marks his victims. Apart, that is, from stuffing their mouths with hair. Pubic hair, incidentally. Oh, I saw that all right. There was the letter L cut into her forehead. Quite unmistakable. I was talking to a detective constable a little later. He told me it was one of the Whistler's trademarks. He thought the L could stand for Lark Soken and that the Whistler might be making some kind of protest about nuclear power. That's utter nonsense. Anyway, there's been nothing on television or in the papers about any cut on the victim's foreheads. The police are keeping it quiet, or trying to. There's been nothing about the hair, either. Those are the sort of details they can use to weed out the false confessions. This detective was telling me there have already been half a dozen. Didn't Chief Inspector Ricards ask you to keep this information confidential? And that's exactly what I intend to do. Ricards didn't want it to become public knowledge, and it won't. And no one here will pass it on. Uh, I must be getting back. Mrs. Dennison, I think you walked from the old rectory. Could I walk you home? Oh. That is, if it's not too early for oh, me. Oh, I'd be so grateful, Mr. Dalglish. Thank you. And it's time Teresa was on her way. We should have driven her home an hour ago. I'll give her father a ring. Where is she, by the way? I think she was next door clearing the table a minute ago. Well, I'll find her and Alex can drive her home. Mm, I'll get back to my cottage. There's no need for anyone to come with me. As Miles so aptly put it, he's had his kicks for tonight. No, Hilary, I'd rather you waited. I'll walk you once I've taken Teresa home. If you insist. I'll go and get the car out. Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah, we've heard. Miles Lessingham is here. Oh, dear. Oh, yes, I see. Well, thank you for letting me know. Her family have been told, I suppose. Yes, I see. Yes, well... Good night, Chief Inspector. Oh, that was Chief Inspector Rickards. They have identified the victim. Christine Baldwin. She's... She was one of our typists. You didn't recognize her then, Miles. I did not. Christine Baldwin, 33, computer operator in the medical physics department. Got married last year. I don't know what you think, but the whistler seems to be getting rather uncomfortably close to home. Oh, 
horrible end to a rather strange dinner party. I wish Mr. Lessingham had kept the details to himself, but I suppose it helped him to talk about it, especially as he lives alone. They would have needed superhuman control not to. I just wish he'd left out the more salacious details. Mm. I'm afraid young Teresa Blaney overheard some of them. Oh, no. When she was clearing the table. By the way, that other death he mentioned, Toby, was that the young man who killed himself at the power station? Mm. I seem to remember a paragraph in one of the papers. Mm. Toby Gledhill was one of Alex's most brilliant young scientists. He climbed up right above the reactor, threw himself down on top of it. Broke his neck. Mm. So there was no mystery about it? None at all. Mm. Except why he did it. Mr. Lessingham saw it happen. It was an appalling tragedy. And you? Have you found peace of mind here? I think so. Sometimes I'm very happy. I came as far east as I could to escape all my problems in London. I remember. The Meg Dennison business made quite a stir at the time. And then you find yourself confronting two different forms of menace. The power station and the whistler. Mm, But the menace isn't personal. I suppose I did run away. Perhaps I should have stayed and fought on. It was becoming a very public war. All I wanted was to be allowed to get on doing the job I loved. But you can't teach in an atmosphere of rancorous political correctness. In the end, I found I couldn't even live in it. I do miss the children, though. Oh, you probably did the right thing, if only to preserve your own sanity. You can't fight intolerance, stupidity and fanaticism single-handed. Do you know, Mr. Douglish, in the end it came down to just two letters of the alphabet. How do you mean? They insisted that the blackboard should be called the chalkboard. I'm sorry, but I just don't believe that any sensible person, whatever their colour, objects to the word blackboard. Hmm. It's black, it's a board. I've called it that all my life. Why should I be forced to change the way I speak my own language? Yes... On this headland, under this sky, it all seems so petty. Perhaps all I did was to elevate trivialities into principles. Agnes Poley would have understood. She refused to accept that Christ was physically present in the sacrament at the same time as he was physically at God's right hand in heaven. To die horribly for your own common-sense view of the universe is rather splendid, I think. Isn't that a light? Where? In the abbey. I'm sure I saw something. Two small flashes like a torch. Who'd be among the ruins at this time of night? Oh, you're up early. Oh, sorry, Alex. Did I disturb you? I've had rather a restless night. No, no, no. I've been awake some time. Holding dinner for Lessingham made it a bit late for comfortable digestion. (laughs) To say nothing of what he told us. Mm. Uh, is this tea fresh? Uh, about ready to pour. The wind's rising. Has been for the last hour. You know, it's a nuisance that Caroline Amphlett doesn't want to leave Lark Soken. I don't relish beginning a new job, particularly this job, with an unknown PA. I'd rather take it for granted that she'd come to London with me. Well, does she say why? Well, personal reasons. That means Jonathan Reeves, I suppose. God knows what she sees in him. The man isn't even a good technician. <laughs> I doubt whether her interest in him is technical. Well, if it's sexual, she has less discrimination than I gave her credit for. Well, there may be another reason. I saw her in Norwich Cathedral about three weeks ago. She met a man in the Lady Chapel. They were very discreet, but it looked like an assignation. Really? What kind of man? Uh, middle-aged, nondescript, difficult to describe. But he was too old to be Jonathan Reeves. Oh. 
Ah, not a particularly successful dinner party. Beta minus. By the way, what is the matter with Hillary? Is she actually trying to be disagreeable, or is she just unhappy? Well, people usually are when they can't get what they want. In her case, you. Is she likely to be a nuisance? Rather more than that, I fear. Positively dangerous. That sounds like an ultimatum, Hillary. I wouldn't call it that. What would you call it then? Blackmail? After what's happened between us, I'd call it justice, Alex. No, let's stick to ultimatum. Justice is too grandiose a concept for what we're engaged in. As you wish. And like every ultimatum, it'll have to be considered. Now, it's usual to set a time limit. What's yours? Alex, I love you. In this new job, you're going to need a wife. I'm the right wife for you. It could work. I'd make it work. I could make you happy. I'm not sure how much happiness I'm capable of. Probably more than I've any right to, but it isn't in anyone's gift. Not Alice's, not yours. Perhaps it is. Alex, I want a child. Don't look at me, Hillary. That's one experiment I'm not prepared to repeat. Because you've already got a son, healthy and living. Your name, your genes will go on. I've never set any store on that. Charles exists in his own right. He has his own life. Yet the life you denied to our child, the life you forced me to destroy, I never wanted that abortion. Hillary, listen. I want a second chance. This new job in London, it's my opportunity as much as yours. We could be married. We could start a family. Or else? You don't want me to say it again. It gives me no pleasure. Alex, please. I'll think about it. I'd like to announce it soon. The engagement. Oh, you're thinking of a church wedding, I suppose. Orange Blossom, Bridesmaids, Mendelssohn's Wedding March. Alex, darling, I'm not thinking of making either of us ridiculous now or after marriage. You know me better than that. I see. Just a quick, painless turning off of the local registrar's office. I'll give you my decision on Sunday night, after I get back from London. You make it sound so formal. Well, it has to be formal, doesn't it, the response to an ultimatum? Sunday night. Yes, I'm afraid there's a nasty problem with Hillary. But nothing you can't cope with. Oh, nothing I can't cope with, but not by making her administrative officer. She'd be a disaster. I should never have allowed her to do the job, even on a temporary basis. When are you holding the interviews? Oh, in ten days. There's a good field. So you've got ten days to decide what to do about her? No, rather less than that. She wants a decision by Sunday. And what about you, Alex? Will you be very disappointed if you don't get this job? I'll be aggrieved, which is rather more destructive of one's peace of mind. I want it, I need it, and I'm the right person for it, Alice. I suppose that's what every candidate thinks, but in my case it happens to be true. It's an important job, one of the most important there is. The future lies with nuclear power if we're to save this planet, but we've got to manage it better, nationally and internationally. Now, that's a job I'm qualified for, and it's a job I could do, but it's high profile and it's sensitive. Whitehall aren't going to rush the appointment. All the same, I think it's pretty much in the bag, provided I keep my nose clean for the next two or three weeks. I'd better be getting back. I told Neil I wouldn't be more than an hour. He gets fussy if I'm late because of the whistler. Besides, there's Timmy. Oh, come on, Amy, another 15 minutes. So beautiful out here. Besides, the whistler doesn't kill in the afternoon. He kills at night. I wish they'd catch him. Be one less thing for Neil to worry about. Tell me, doesn't Pasco ever ask where you're going when you sneak out on Sunday afternoons, leaving him to look after the child? No, he doesn't. And the child is called Timmy. And I don't sneak. 
I say I'm going, and I go. We must wonder. Oh, he wonders all right. He thinks people are entitled to their privacy. Why torment him? He's probably fond of you. No, he isn't. Not very. It's Timmy he likes. What other word is there? You can't call it going to bed. I've only been in your bed once, and then you're as jumpy as a cat, thinking that sister of yours might come back unexpectedly. And you can't say we sleep together. We make love, or if you prefer, we copulate. Honestly, Alex, that's disgusting. I think that word is really disgusting. And do you do it with Pasco? Sleep, go to bed, make love, copulate? No, I don't. Not that it's any business of yours. Neil's my friend. Why don't you do something about that bitch at Lark Soken? The one suing him. You could stop her. You're the boss. Well, not over my staff's private lives. If Hillary Robarts thinks she's been libelled, I can't prevent her going to law. She won't get any money. Neil hasn't got any. And if he has to pay costs, it'll ruin him. I should have thought of that earlier. You ought to be grateful to Neil. If he didn't look after Timmy, I wouldn't be here. Oh, I am grateful to him, Amy. Believe me, I am. And to you. Are you, Alex? How do I compare then? Am I as good a lay as your ex-wife? Oh, Amy, you're fantastic. I've never known anything like these last few weeks. Never. I can't stop thinking about you. You can. You can stop thinking right now and try some action. Come on, Alex. You can do it again. You know you can. Oh, Amy. 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 Oh. Alice? Meg! Come in. As you can see, I'm making lemon curd. Alex and I like it from time to time, and I do enjoy making it, which is excuse enough. We never ate it. Martin and I, that is. I don't think I've eaten it since I was a child. Do you often think of Martin? All the time. Surely, after all... Every day. The three years have made no difference. You miss him? Oh, it's more than that. Of course I miss him. We were still in love. But it's the unfairness. He didn't get many thanks, you know. The headmaster said all the right things at the school memorial service. But they thought the boy shouldn't have been swimming there anyway... The school disclaimed any responsibility for his death. They were more anxious to escape criticism than to honour Martin. And the boy he saved hasn't turned out very well. I suppose I'm silly to worry about that. I don't know. It'd be perfectly natural to hope that your husband hadn't died for someone's second rate. Oh. Perhaps Martin would have done better to leave him to drown and save himself. Leave him to drown? Oh, Alice, you know you'd try to save him. No. Instinct tells you to save yourself. At the heart of the universe, there is cruelty. We're all predators. It's when you go against human instinct that you're called a hero. But it's human instinct, surely, to save others, particularly a child. (laughs) You do have a benign view of the universe, Meg. You must have had an extraordinarily happy childhood. I did. Oh, I did. There wasn't much money, but there was a great deal of love. If a child has that, nothing else matters. My father died, killed in an accident when I was 15. Oh, how terrible. What kind of accident? Were you there? Did you see it? Alex, he's bleeding to death. Whatever he's been doing to you, he won't do it again, ever. We've got to get help. No. Listen to me, and I'll tell you what happened. We left him clearing the undergrowth with the billhook and went to climb the apple trees. Then we decided we'd better get back. When we found him, he was already dead. It's as simple as that. Do you understand? Yes, I understand. 
He cut an artery with a billhook. He bled to death. No, no, we didn't see it. But we were on the scene soon afterwards. Too late, of course. Alex, too? He was even younger. How awful for you both. This will make three pounds. Alex and I will never get through all that lemon curd do-taker jar. The Copleys might like it. I'm sure they would, but I'll be eating it alone. That's what I've come to tell you. Their daughter is insisting that they go to her until the whistler is caught. They're leaving tomorrow. What about you? Will you mind being on your own? No, not in the least. I'll be able to spend more time here with you, helping with the proofs. Oh, by the way, I'm sorry about yesterday evening. Not a very successful dinner party. Mm. I owed Miles and Hillary a meal, but I hadn't realised how much they disliked each other. I don't know why. By the way, uh, how did you get on with our resident poet? Mm, I liked him. We walked together to the Abbey Ruins. They look wonderful by moonlight. Appropriately romantic for a poet. We spoke about Agnes Poli. You know, I always feel something of her presence in this house. Something of her remains here. I suppose that depends on your understanding of time. If all time is one, then perhaps she is still here, still alive, burning in an everlasting bonfire. But I'm never aware of her. She doesn't appear to me. Perhaps she finds me unsympathetic. For me, the dead remain dead. If I couldn't believe that, I don't think I could go on living. This cottage was totally unsuitable for a sick woman who had to undergo long journeys for radiotherapy. You must have known she was ill when you signed the lease. She couldn't manage. And I suppose, Ms. Robarts, you thought that after she'd gone, I wouldn't be able to manage either. How many months did you give her, hmm? Pretending you were so concerned. She knew what you were at. Week by week, watching how much weight she was losing. Not much longer now, you thought. Oh, you made her life a bloody misery for her last weeks. That simply is not true. Don't load your guilt on me. I had to come here. That leak in the kitchen, the loose tiles. You were the first to point out my obligations as landlord. Now, if you won't get out, I shall have to apply for a rise in the rent. What you pay is derisory. doesn't even cover repairs. Try. Go to the rent tribunal. Let them come and see for themselves. You can't get me out. I pay the rent regularly. For how long? You haven't got a job. I suppose you call yourself an artist, but who buys Ryan Blaney's? Those four watercolours Ackworth has in his window have been there for weeks. Junk doesn't sell just because it's cheap. You mind your own bloody business. I'm managing very well. I don't think you are. I think the children are suffering. It was you, wasn't it? What are you talking that, about? That woman, that bloody social worker who came to spy on me and question my children. It was you who sent her. I'm not required to answer that. If I did alert them, then it was about time somebody did. Oh, my God, you're evil, aren't you? You'd do anything to get me and the kids out of this cottage. They used to burn people like you. If it wasn't for the children, I'd kill you. But I'm not having them taken into care just for the satisfaction of putting my hands around your throat. Now, just get out. Out of my cottage, off my ground, and don't you ever interfere with my life again, or I swear I won't be responsible for the consequences. Sunday, the 25th of September. I spent the morning revisiting Norwich Cathedral, before lunching at a restaurant where, two years before, my Aunt Jane and I had enjoyed an excellent meal. Afterwards, I set off for the 15th-century church of St. Peter and St. Paul at Saul. 
I see you're admiring our carvings. I know them of old. You've been here before? Not for some years, I'm afraid. I'd forgotten how wonderful the carvings on these stalls are. Mm. It's a magnificent interior. The east window. The screen, that pulpit. An original medieval wine glass pattern. There are very few of them left. Ah. Mr. Brayburn, preparing for Evensong? I have a request, Vicar. I hope you'll grant it. If I'm able. When I used to visit your church some years ago, it was often in the company of my aunt. She loved it dearly. She died recently. Oh, I am sorry. In her will, she asked for her ashes to be scattered in your churchyard. I wonder, would you allow that? But of course. What was your aunt's name? Jane Dalgleish. I shall say a prayer. I made my way to the eastern edge of the churchyard. There I opened the package, which had been dragging at my jacket pocket, and tipped out the ground bones like a libation. There was a flash of silver, and all that remained of Jane Dalgleish sparkled among the brittle autumn stalks and the tall grasses. I knew the customary words for such an occasion. I'd heard them often enough on my father's lips. But the ones that came unbidden to my mind were the verses from Ecclesiastes, carved on the stone outside Martyr's Cottage. That which hath been is now, and that which is to be hath already been. And God requireth that which is past. What a moon. So close you could touch it. Just lift your hand. All the frustrations, all the fears, all the anger washed away. Drained away. Oh, the peace, the happiness in their place. Yes, everything's going to be all right. Tonight we'll sort out all the details. I love Alex. Alex loves me. We'll be married. I'll have his child. What else matters? Neil Pascoe. Too unimportant even to hate. The wedding, the move to London. I'll have no time to bother. Ryan Blaney. Solicitor's right. Possession of Scudder's cottage can wait. The rent's being paid. I'm losing nothing. Let him stay where he is. I'll tell Alex about it. Alex? Must be nearly half past nine. I must be getting back. Mustn't keep him waiting. Alex, my darling, I'm coming. I'm coming to you. It was early evening when I got home. I kindled a fire, made myself some soup, and listened to a concert. When the music came to an end, I decided to take a brisk walk by the sea before bed. The night was too calm and beautiful to be wasted in nostalgia and futile regrets. I began to walk across the headland to the north. Three quarters of an hour later, I decided to make for the beach. I had a sudden childish impulse to feel the sea washing over my feet. 
I took off my shoes and socks, then splashed along the fringe of the waves. After a bit, I reached the narrow strip of pine trees. I knew there was a path which cut inland through them, past Hilary Robart's cottage and so up to the road. I put my shoes and socks back on and trudged through the pebbles to the shoreline. When I reached the powdery sand, I saw that someone had been there before me, a double line of naked footprints. Hilary Robarts, I thought. She must have taken her nightly swim as usual. Yeah, a reasonable supposition, Mr. Delgleish. Uh, please go on. Well, the path through the trees lay in front of me. It led from the bright moonlight into the shadows of the pine wood. I switched on my torch. It was then that I caught the gleam of something white to my left. Something white? A sheet of newspaper, I thought. Perhaps a handkerchief, a discarded paper bag. I thought I'd take a look. Yes? And then I saw her. I recognised her at once. Her face seemed to leap up in the torchlight. She was lying as you see her, the hair pushed under the upper lip, the letter L carved into her forehead. I've touched nothing, the beach towel, the sandals, the torch. Well, what did you do? I went on up the path, reached the main road and started to jog towards my house, Lark's Oaken Mill, to phone the station. Then I heard the sound of a car. I waved it down. It was Alex Mayer. Mr. Dalgleish, what on earth's up? There's been another murder. I've just found the body. I must get to a telephone. The Whistler? It looks like it. But who... Prepare yourself for a shock, Dr. Mayer. I'm afraid it's Hilary Robarts. In episode two of Devices and Desires by P.D. James, dramatised by Neville Teller, Robin Ellis played Adam Dalgleish. Suzanne Bertiche was Alice Mayer. Paul Shelley, Alex Mayer. Susanna Doyle, Hilary Robarts. Bruce Alexander, Rickards. Emily Richard, Meg Dennison. Sasha Paul, Amy. Dermot Crowley, Blaney. Kate Wilton, Teresa and Alice Mayer, aged 15. Dominic Jeffcott, Miles Lessingham, Vaughan Savell, Alex, aged 15, and Geoffrey Beavers played the vicar. Devices and Desires was directed by Matthew Walters as a Ladbrook Radio production for BBC Radio 4. been a nostalgic mystery radio presentation i hope you enjoyed this episode please feel free to like and rate this podcast on your favorite app also there's a nostalgic mystery radio youtube page for your perusal to subscribe to you can contact me by emailing me at nostalgicmysteryradio at gmail.com i hope you have a blessed day or evening and again thank you for listening